I'm Elizabeth Hunterton, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Hello and welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and joining us today is a absolutely fabulous, phenomenal, fantastic, wonderful woman that I am so honored has taken a few moments to talk with us today. Her name is Elizabeth Hunterton. Welcome, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Will. I appreciate you inviting me on. Absolutely. Well, after our time together this summer during our panel conversation on systemic racism and then becoming Facebook friends and seeing your post and your story unfold, I said, I've got to get you on the actual podcast and just talk to you about you a bit more because your journey and your experience, it's, it's just interesting and fascinating and so unique. And all seven plus billion of us are unique. I totally get and embrace that. And you are really unique. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It, you know, it's, and you don't, when it's your own story and it's all you know, I don't know that I've always been able to understand or comprehend the gravity of just how truly unique my path has been. Um, but there was a moment in this most recent chapter that you're talking about that I shared when I realized I asked my husband, I said, would most pe people be sad about this? And he looked at me and he said, Babe, most people don't have to do this. And it was kind of in that moment where I realized just how unique and extraordinary my experiences have been. And this last chapter just put them all to shame because um, it, it was just bizarre. Yeah, but bizarre is definitely <laughs> one way. I, I prefer fascinating, you know, fascinating yeah. is one way to frame it, but no, yeah. uh, it, it really is such, and it's so special, the person you've become because of this journey and hearing your heart over the past, I guess it's been about six months since we first connected has really been an inspiration to me and a light of hope in a very dark and tumultuous time. So I want to thank you for your transparency and for allowing others to be a part of your story and a part of your journey. So for those that do not know, I'm sure they're like, okay, let's get to it. What is he talking about? Right. You were adopted and let's start there. Let's start with, with that. Okay, so I was abandoned at the Reno airport on January 17th, 1980. And I was found by two pilots who then took me to Lost and Found because that's where you take lost luggage or babies that are left at the airport. Uh, I was taken to the hospital and my parents who went on to adopt me uh, were called and with zero questions asked, they came and picked me up and I've been with them ever since. Um, investigators always called my abandonment the perfect abandonment um, because not only was I left at the Reno airport where it's transient, um, there are no flight manifests from 1980. Um, there's no record of me being born at a hospital. Um, and in or I was I was found January 17th and I was three to 30 days old when I was found. So the investigators had always said to find that few week window where you were born, you know, in the eighties when we shipped everything overseas to be put on computers, everything got split into decades. So we would have to pull every single record from 1970 
And every single record of 19, from 1980, from any single mother of any single race, of every single race, in order to find the possibility, if you were even born in a hospital, to possibly find the record of your birth. And so I never, ever in a million years thought that I would, A, know my race, because that was just technologically not something that was available when I was young. <clears throat> I do remember being, when I was, I may have been eight, and we went to a hematologist. I went with my mom, and the doctor explained, if you want to come in for a few hours, we should be able to extract enough blood, um, and then we'll ship it off with this new genetic sequencing. And in six to eight months, we'll get your results. And that'll tell you what percentage of you is Caucasian and that will be $4,000. And so I just never thought that knowing my ethnicity was a possibility for me because we couldn't afford $4,000. And I remember I told my mom like, well, I can tell you it's not much Caucasian. Like we don't need to pay for that and have them take half my blood. Um, <clears throat> so I never thought I would know my race. I never thought I would know my biological father because there is no account of him anywhere. And I never thought I would know my biological mother because outside of witness reports from people who were at the airport that day, I don't have anything. My birth certificate says Jane Doe, baby Jane Doe. My birthplace says Reno Airport. My birth date has an asterisk that says January 17th, date discovered. In the notes, it says um, aged three to 30 days old at discovery. You know, my birth, if I'm ever the target of a birther movement, I'm done because my birth certificate is just a joke. Um, and so, you know, you fast forward that, you know, I'm adopted by my parents who, who are white, my brother's Hispanic and Native American. And I'm obviously black and something else, but we never knew what that something else was. So I spent the first that 37 years of my life knowing that every single individual I cross paths with, I could potentially be related to. And I knew that, so I have spent my entire life looking at every single interaction as an interaction with a possible, possible relative. So I've, I've always looked for the common ground in every single interaction um, and you know, had an incredible life. I grew up in rural Nevada, which is not easy being a person of, a color, a person of color, but it equipped me with so many strengths that I now, I now can appreciate the luxury that, that I was allowed to have by having to blend in, stand out and coexist. And um, so grew up in, in Northern Nevada and came down to UNLV to go to school and accidentally found myself in the wonderful world of pageantry. And I won um, Miss Las Vegas and Miss Nevada and went on to Miss America. And, um, and then my son who, my firstborn, who was my first biological relative, had this crazy heart anomaly, um, was the first of its kind. So I wrote a children's book for him, um, to an empowering book for children with scars. And then I started writing, <clears throat> you know, really answering the call to so many people who had always said, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. So I was working on my first adult title and had written this transformative, beautiful book that I was so proud of and so excited about. And I was sitting at the library editing what I thought was the final chapter of that book. And I was sitting there at the library and I hear a ding. 
and it was a new um, biological relative through 23andMe. And I assumed that like it always is, it was like a sixth or seventh cousin, which by the way, you and I are probably sixth or seventh cousins. So nice to meet you cousin. Um, I assumed it was another distant relative, but it was a second cousin and it was the first on my biological mother's side. And I got home and I told my husband and I said, yeah, so I got a new, I got a second cousin today. And he was like, but that's a, that's a big deal. And I said, I, why is it a big deal? And he said, because that's close enough that we might be able to find some prospects for your biological mother. And so we jumped in, like started researching and through the help of obituaries and public record, we put together this family tree. And from that, I identify a potential biological mother. Um, and she was uh, 31 when she would have left me at the airport. And Will, I, I've been casting this story my entire life. And I have been imagining what the woman who left me at the airport looked like. I never, I never pictured a 31 year old woman. You know, I had always pictured this kind of desperate, vulnerable teen in a really extreme situation. I, I didn't imagine she was this career woman, you know, who was well-educated and refined, um, you know, performer and an athlete graduated from my dream school, you know, dedicated her life to public health where I was working in the, in that field at the time. I just, I didn't imagine that. Um, and so she was my connection. And then I reached out to her nephew and it turned out she had um, passed away in the past several years. And he said, you know, I just want to make sure that you're accurate before I, before I engage her family. And I said, you know what? I don't want to disrupt her family let me just explore this other side of the family, um, which I knew due to mitochondrial DNA, it probably, it was unlikely. But when I entered the next name and I started researching her, I was like, okay, don't reach out to biological mother. Number one, her family, because biological mother, number two, she looks just like me. So that came biological mother, number two, who, if I were pure Japanese would look just like her, like it it's crazy how similar we look. And so, you know, in researching her, I, I just fell in love with her. You know, she was this, this woman, this young woman who's worked government jobs and, you know, had a son when she was fairly young. And, um, but the hard part of that is she would have been 14 when she got pregnant and my biological father was 29. And I, I did not handle that well. Um, because going into this, you know, I think I had three very real fears. And one of them is that he was a pedophile. It, that's something I just was not ready to accept. And that's not to extend shame to anyone who does have that fate. I knew that would just be something I would have a hard time grappling with. And, you know, I finally mustered up the courage and I sent her a message and, um, and she responded, you know, I'd like some more information. And I was like, that makes sense. Cause it does sound a little bit like that foreign heiress that can only access her $6 billion fortune. If I, if you give me your information. Um, so I followed up and I gave her more information and, um, and she wrote back, sadly, I, I'm not your biological mother. I, I hope when you find her, she is as proud of you as you deserve. And if she's not, I'll be here. And that was so unexpected beautiful um just her acceptance and her her kindness 
And through her kindness, it really started kind of rewriting my self-narrative and presented the op- the possibility that maybe, that just maybe I'm not somebody's worst mistake. And maybe, just maybe, I'm not the worst thing that ever happened to somebody or the worst thing that happened to me, right? Like wow. that's just something I've always carried, right? Um, because I know my mere existence can bring shame. My, my birth mother is Japanese and that is not a culture that race, I mean, it's one of the most homogenous cultures. You don't mix races within the Japanese culture, especially with black. And so I know that my existence, what it had, has the power to do. And I minored in Japanese in college before I even knew my ethnicity. Like I just, so I know the culture very well. Um, and then I asked her, I said, would your, do you think your mom would be willing to talk to me? Because I, the connection, my relation is either with her side or your father's side. I had asked her if, if her aunt would be willing to talk to me because the connection came on one of their sides the aunt or the uncle. And she said, Oh yeah, <clears throat> my aunt will be willing to talk to you. She and I are really close. It's my dad's youngest sister. And I was like, I thought it was your dad's only sister, youngest sister. Wait a second. So then I start researching because I knew there was somebody missing on my family tree. And that woman, the other sister had an only child um, and her biological mother, number three, who walked straight out of casting and was exactly what I had imagined my entire life. I found these photos of her and we were literally sitting in the same posture. You know, we were, she was wearing clothes that I literally own, um, same designer, same color. You know, we are wearing the same clothing and, you know, she would have been 17 when she got pregnant with me, 18 when she left me. And she got transferred out of public school the year I was born and got transferred to this elite private school and has no electronic footprint who her social media has photos of celebrities and not herself. It's listed under a brief initials, not her full name. And I was like, this is a woman who does not want to be found and fell in love with her. And I said, this is my birth mother. And I remember when I was sending her the message, I just kept thinking, this is it. This is the last day that I don't know my biological mother. This, my life is about to change. Like I did it. I found her. So I sent her a message and she also requested more information. I sent her a variation of the other email. And then she wrote back, you know, sadly, I'm, I'm not your biological mother. And that one like that, that one hurts so deeply because I just knew in my heart of hearts that it was her. Um, and so, you know, I closed that one and circled back to maybe biological mother, number one, the 31 year old. And I, I really just came to a place of acceptance and I said, okay, this is my biological mother. Um, she was 31 when she left me and closed that chapter wrote her name down on my bucket list next to find my birth mother and moved on because in the week that I had gone through those three biological mothers, COVID started as a blip on a radar and turned into a global pandemic. And, you know, my boys were, and it was just trying to adjust to this new normal and heal 
in the aftermath of this really emotional week-long experience that I had with these three biological mothers. And so I was, I put a bow on it, Will. Like I was done. I was like, cool, I did it. And had one of the more embarrassing moments of my life at the conclusion. Like I, you know, I, I finished this chapter. I added this next chapter that obviously had to be added to the book. And I closed my computer and I took a deep breath and I closed my eyes and I walked to the middle of the living room and I bowed my head and I put my arms out and I waited. And I was standing there for what seemed like an eternity. And finally I was like, well, where is it? And well, I honestly, in my heart of hearts, thought that this sparkly tornado, like in the Disney movies, was going to come sweep me up and transform me and lay me back down as this new version of myself because I had fulfilled my lifelong quest. I did it. I solved the perfect abandonment. And that didn't happen. And so I like rushed back and I sit down at my computer like, I hope nobody saw what just happened because you're freaking crazy, right? And so I was um, talking to my friend that night and I was like, okay, Felicia, I have to confide in something. You are not gonna believe what I did today. I like got up in the middle of the room and I thought this spark, and I was like, but I get it. There's no such thing as sparkly tornadoes. And she was like, you don't get it, do you? And I said, I don't get what? And she said, yeah, you're not waiting for a sparkly tornado. You've become one. And I said, what? What, what are you saying? And I really thought about that. And Will, I think she's right. When you're willing to walk through the discomfort and heal your broken heart and accept whatever the outcome is, even if you don't necessarily like it or if it isn't what you have planned your entire life, um, you aren't waiting for the sparkly tornado anymore. You have transformed and you have become, and you are your new self. Um, but I think when we're becoming the sparkly tornado, it doesn't feel like that. You know, it doesn't feel like we're inspiring anybody or transforming or changing. It just feels like we are trying to survive and make it. Um, so yeah, that was, that was round one. Um, biological mothers, one through three and sparkly tornadoes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So first, thank you for making my job super easy because I, I just kept going. I'm so sorry. That was the no, <laughs> I mean, that is wow. Um, you gave us so much in there and I love how you recognize in the end, you've become that sparkly tornado. And I'm a huge Wizard of Oz fan. So, you know, the tornado has such significance to me. And it's it's so many pieces in that story that even though I know both of my biological parents, that I can still relate to in that longing and that searching and that hoping that when I finally get to whatever it may be, is it, you know, the, the job I want? Is it the, the marriage, the house, whatever it may be, that then... I will finally be be me. And then you get it and it's like, oh, here I am. So that that issue is is I think something everyone can relate to. Why is it that finding your biological mother was so important given you had this adopted family that really was so supportive and nurturing and, and fostered the person you are today? You know, honestly, I I had no desire to find my biological family. Um, my mom has always said for as long as I can remember, 
she's always said, I hope I get the chance to meet your birth parents um, so I can thank them. Like, I want to thank your birth mother so I can thank her. You are my greatest love. And I hope I get to thank her for, for you. And so I knew that someday, if it was within my power, I would find her to give that gift to my mom. And so I, um, so that's where this all started was this gift to give to my mother. And then I think somewhere along the line, it became a critical part of my own journey. Um, like I just needed to discover that. And I'm not really sure why at the time, I know now that I'm on the other side of it, that was the only way by which I was gonna transform and truly reach self-acceptance, uh, rewrite, my inaccurate and harmful self-narrative and most powerfully um, put down shame and release myself from shame, which I did in round two. Um, so tell us about round two. Now this one is a doozy. <laughs> this is where things get crazy. Oh, this is where it happens. Okay. <laughs> like I'd, I'd always tell people, I'm like, yeah, I got left at the airport as a baby and then things got really weird. <laughs> <laughs> crazy life. So, so again, I had put a bow on it. Like I was done. I had come to terms with it, put her next to my bucket list, um, found my biological mother on August 1st. I was out with shine a light, which is an incredible organization that goes into the tunnels under Las Vegas. And on that particular day, this woman had decided to leave behind her tent and start the long road to sobriety. And she was like clutching this baby blanket. And she and I were talking on the way back to our car. And I, and I said, so, so whose blanket is that? And she was telling me about her, her daughter, Winona, that she was like, you know, I love her so much and I wish I could enter her life. I just can't until I'm sober. And, and I said, well, where is she? And she said, she's with my sister now. And I hope, I, I hope in this lifetime, I get to see her again. And I remember that whole night, I like, I just couldn't get that conversation out of my head because I can't imagine how painful that must be to surrender a child, knowing that the baby would have a better life, not with me in it. And then for everybody to interpret that as being selfish when really it's the hardest, most selfless thing I could do, like that, that would break my heart. And so I just kept thinking about it and kept thinking about it and then ding, I got a new relative and I was like, okay, so I, you know, I pull, roll out my family tree that I'd been working on and I plug in this new second cousin and will I see within minutes that it is a genetic impossibility that it's biological mother number one. I can't bring myself to cross her off my family tree because it would just hurt so deeply. Um, and I have actually since gotten permission from her family. I don't have to cross her off and she gets to stay on my bucket list. Her, her daughter said she can live on forever there, um, which is so beautiful. And um, so, you know, I get this, this, this huge family tree and this whole other side of the family. What I didn't know at the time is the first connection was bookend number one. And the second connection was bookend number two. So I knew my biological mother had to come within this span. And I was sitting there, I was like, what am I missing? What am I missing? What, what is the connection? But I knew the key was going to be to find former generations, maiden names, which was going to be difficult because they were born in Japan. And so I'm going through, through ship manifests in 1886, trying to figure out who came over with whom and what internment camp they went to and when they were, I mean, I'm piecing together 
because in the 40, a lot of them got, got put into internment camps if you were of Japanese descent here in the States. So it became this, this hunt to try to find these people. And the, I, I sent a message to biological mother number two. And I was like, hi, do you, do you think your parents would still be able to talk to me? I really need to talk to your dad because the relationship comes on his side of the family. Like he's the key to all of this. He has all the answers I need. And she writes back, I mean, she's so happy to hear from me. And she says to me, I hope that his daughter will be able to give you the answers that you need because he passed a couple months ago. And I was so defeated, I think. Yeah. Because it's like, I've come this far. And did all of my answers just pass away with him? And the only answer was, yeah, maybe. And you're going to have to be okay either way because you can't control them. And so I get connected with his daughter and we agree to to have a conversation that Saturday morning. And the whole week I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wonder if we're going to sound the same because I've never spoken to a biological relative. So I was like, gosh, I wonder if we'll have the same voice or I wonder what this is going to look like. And I was so anxious about it all. And in her message, she had emailed me and I was like, please apologize to the family of biological mother number one. I didn't mean to desecrate her memory. Um, And she was like, nobody's upset with you. No one is upset with you. Everyone is so honored that you would reach out to us and, and we're all going to help you in any way we can. And that, I think, eliminated any remnants of fear I had moving forward because of the acceptance that I had from biological mother number one's family, biological mother number two, number three, this new second cousin. They had all embraced me and wanted to be part of this journey. And I got to that point, I said, you know what? Come what may from this point on, because I have more than I ever thought I would have. So we finally, we get, we talk on the phone and we're sitting here. I was like, okay, take me through this family tree. And we're going through all the names. I'm crossing people off. And she was like, well, my dad had a cousin, Mary. I was like, Mary Smith, Mary Smith, Mary Smith, who has two daughters and one son. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, that's it. That's it. (laughs) That's That's the connection. That they just became the only two possibilities. So I cross off the sun and I circle the two women. And I was like, they just became the only two possibilities. Enter biological mothers, four and five sisters. Now these two went, so it's really interesting. So I'm talking to the second cousin and she was like, oh my gosh, I bet it's number four. And I was like, well, what makes you say that? because I've seen both of these women's yearbook photos. Like this is the only photo I have them at this time. So I'm looking at the yearbook photos and the moment I saw four, I knew it was her. I was like, it's her. Now five is elegant and beautiful and glamorous. And as much as I would have loved to say it's her, I was like, no, it's four. Who you can even see at 18 is so burdened. I was like, "This this is her. She's not the elegant beauty her sister is like, but this is my birth mother. And she was like, I bet it was her. You know I mean? She's always had short hair. And I was like, no, no, that's not possible. And she was like, "Uh, it is possible. And it is accurate. And I was like, no, no, that can't be right. (laughs) And she was like, no, it is right. And, and she's like, well, now her sister, on the other hand, I was like, let me guess her sister, five, four to five, seven, slender, elegant, fashionable, and has, oh, naturally beautiful, doesn't wear a lot of makeup and has long black hair. 
And she was like, yeah, to a T, how did you know that? And I was like, the witness reports. The wow. witness reports from the airport are describing number five. But I truly believe my birth mother is number four. Wait a minute. What does this mean? So then, like, for the first time in my life, I asked myself, was it not my birth mother who left me at the airport? Because every headline my entire life has said birth mother leaves baby at the airport. Like it's one of the few facts I have. So now that just dismantled the little tiny bit of identity I have shattered. And then the other question became, did the woman who leave left me at the airport do it with permission from biological mother number four, or did she do it on her own volition? Because if she did it without permission, that is kidnapping. And there is no statute of limitations on kidnapping. Because I was likely born in California and she took me to the Reno airport in Nevada, now we have trafficked a child across state lines. And now that's federal. And there's also no statute of limitations on that. So now I'm going through this. I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, I don't want her to be criminalized for this. At the same time, like, I know she shouldn't have taken me. Like, I get that too. What am I going to do? So I decide to reach out to number five, the woman I think left me at the airport. So I, up until that point, Will, I had thought that this process was harder on my friends than it was on me because people would ask like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? It's like, guys, I'm good. Like I've had my entire life to get, to be prepared for this. And then when it came time to write the letter to number five, I knew that day, this was not harder on anyone on this planet than it is on me because that process gutted me. I get it. I want to back up just a moment to your friend because I don't want to rush past that part. In that moment, she supported you by listening. By what listening. else did she offer to you? She, she first let me just pour out my pain. Coming up, a perfect story. It's part two with Elizabeth Hunterton. Everything had to happen exactly the way it did, when it did, how it did, why it did. And now that I'm on the other side, I can say, I've been given this purpose. It's all so beautiful. 